0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Seeing all these children up here and singing the songs that they learned at Vacation Bible School really was a joy. I I cannot tell you what it meant to walk through this place, Uh, 430 children, 240 volunteers, not counting some of the staff. This place was full of people. It was full of energy, it was full of excitement, and it was just a sweet time to have all of those folks here at church. Bridget and her team did a great job. If you volunteered, thank you for making all of that possible. And if if you saw something there that catches your attention… We'd love to create an opportunity for you to be part of it next year, and I hope you'll consider that. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Alan Tolliver. I have the pleasure of serving here as the executive pastor of Dunwoody Baptist Church, and I'm grateful to Pastor Jackson for providing the opportunity to speak this morning. Welcome. Welcome to those of you in the room. Welcome to those of you online. It's good to have you with us. Well, we're in week two of our study of the book of Jonah. And Pastor raised a question last week that I'd like to explore as we begin our time in the Word. Jonah was the prophet who never got it right. And I want to pick up something Pastor said and spend a few more minutes on it. As we look back at Jonah chapter one, especially the first couple of verses, there's a fascinating study in opposites. And and it's like God says, Jonah, get up go to the north and east, go to the capital city of Assyria. And that means to take the road across the desert and preach against the wicked ways of the people of Nineveh. And Jonah, in response to that, goes down to Joppa, down to the harbor, down into the bottom of a ship, and then sets off across the water to a place called Tarshish, which is at the end of the known world, and he doesn't tell anybody anything about God. Now I did a little bit of map study as I prepared for this study this morning, and you ready for this. Nineveh is 500 miles from Israel. It's as if God told Jonah to get on a donkey and ride to Richmond, Virginia. Instead, Jonah goes to the Gulf Coast, gets on a boat, and sails to Cancun. That's, in, in real terms, that's kind of, of what happened, and you get an idea of, of the picture there. So if we look back at Jonah chapter 1, I'll go back to verse 12. The ship is in a terrible storm. The sailors are terrified. They've worked out that Jonah was a man on a mission from God. He didn't do what he was supposed to, and now he's on the run. They ask what they should do, and the text says, "'Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it might quiet down for you, for I know that I'm to blame for this storm.'" And you'll note that Jonah did not even have the decency to jump off the boat by himself. Do you know how selfish that is? Sailors are not in the habit of throwing paying customers over the side. In fact, Jonah says, toss me off to lighten the load. They say, "Uh, we're not doing that. They row harder. And the text says that the storm got even worse. And so they take Jonah, they yeet him right off the side of the boat, and he disappears into the water and the storm subsides. That's the end of it. Which brings us up to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. And it says, now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. Before we move on to Jonah's time inside the fish, though, I'd like to tell you about Jonah's other honorable mentions in Scripture. This is not his only story in the scriptures. The text says in 2 Kings 14, 23 to 28, we learn about a king of Israel named Jeroboam II. Now, what you may not know about Jeroboam II is that he was uh, ruling in the northern kingdom. This is when Israel had split into two parts. Israel and Judah were separate countries. And it was a time when Jeroboam uh, was. In, the, uh, in charge of the country. He's the, he's the ruler and the king. And Scripture says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But God used Jeroboam for his purposes anyway. You see, Jeroboam was ruling at a time when Assyria was growing in power, growing in strength, and Assyria is expanding their territory. And they're stealing Israelite land, and as they expand the space that they're in, they persecute the Israelites who stay on their farms in that border area. So Assyria is growing by stealing land from Israel and persecuting the Hebrew people on the land, and so God uses Jonah to give advice to Jeroboam. So even though he's an evil king, Jeroboam was wise enough to realize that Jonah could hear God's voice and he asked for advice, and Jonah gave it. Jonah would ask God what he would do. He would take that information, he would give it to the king, and then the king would act on that, uh, on that prophecy. And so Jeroboam listens to God through Jonah. Israel has a string of victories, and they're able to regain that territory that had been taken by Assyria. So God used a bad king for good purposes, and Jonah is the person in the middle speaking God's truth to this king. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I need to tell you something about Old Testament prophets, though, and this is important. Prophecy in the Old Testament tended to be very specific, very direct, and really very time-sensitive. The prophet was honored for bringing a word from God, and, and the people would listen to the prophet because the prophet had a track record of accurate word from uh, the Lord. The logic goes like this. God's will is perfect, and God's words are perfect. So when a prophet hears from God and conveys that accurately with integrity, then whatever comes out of the prophet's mouth is God's truth. You follow that? So based on what a prophet said, kingdoms went to war, alliances are formed, big decisions get made, and the test of prophecy was whether it came true in short order. The inverse also applied. See, if the prophecy doesn't come true, then the prophet has spoken a word that was supposed to be from God, but that it didn't work out, which means the prophet is a false prophet, and false prophets didn't do real well in that time. Now, if you know the story of Jonah, you probably know where I'm going now. See, Jonah is a man of influence. He's got the king's ear. He's able to Hear from God and to speak that truth into different situations, God wants Jonah to go to a pagan people who are the mortal enemies of Israel. He wants Jonah to walk to the public square and tell them all they're going to die. Now Syria has been persecuting Israel for some 200 years at this point, and Jonah's sitting there thinking, "If God's going to destroy the people in Nineveh, let's get on with it, right? Why would we want to interrupt that? And by the way, if God's going to destroy Nineveh anyway, why would I get on a donkey and make a two-month trip to tell him? Now, remember what I said about false prophets not doing real well? Here's the problem Jonah's got, and I think this is part of why he does what he does. If Jonah prophesies death and destruction to Nineveh, and God saves them, then Jonah's prophecy doesn't come true, and Jonah is a false prophet. So as far as Jonah can see, this is a terrible idea all the way around. All he can figure is, God got this one wrong, and so he's so sure that God is wrong on this one, God says, go up. Jonah says, I'm going to go down. God says, cross the desert. Jonah says, I'm going to get on a boat. God says, go north and east. Southwest it is. Great city, someplace nobody ever heard of. Jonah did all the wrong things in this story. But if I'm being honest here, I'm a little tiny bit sympathetic. And with that in mind, let's look at this morning's text together. It's up on the screen. Jonah 1:17 begins: Now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple." The waters engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, and I sank into the foundations of the mountains. The earth with its prison bars closed behind me. But you raised my life from the pit, Lord, my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. And as we look at the words that Jonah prayed, he told God he was in distress. He admitted his fear. He acknowledged that he was being disciplined by God. And I'll deal with some of the other elements of his prayer in a moment. But as we look at the text together... This prayer is very unusual because of what is missing in the prayer. Jonah admits things are bad. He admits he's afraid. He knows he's a long way from where he's supposed to be. But isn't it strange that there's not one word in this text about taking responsibility for the circumstances he's in? Does that surprise you? and personal responsibility is where I'd like to go next because I have an observation to share. When it comes to making or receiving an apology, 49 years of life experience speaking here, I have noticed that apologies only come in two flavors. The first flavor of apology is where you understand you've made an error, You are legitimately sorry for it. You express regret to those who are affected. You understand that you've caused hurt and embarrassment to others. You messed up. You own it. You ask forgiveness, and then you take corrective action and don't do that thing anymore. That's the first kind of apology I'm talking about. But then there's another kind of apology, This is the one where you did something wrong and there were some consequences. You want relief from the pain. You want the consequences to stop. But you're not actually sorry for what you did. That's that second flavor that I'm talking about. Oh, pause that. I'm not quite ready to go there yet. Hold on. You're going to like that part of the thing in a minute. The first flavor I'm talking about is reconciliation and healing because that's your goal. The second flavor I'm talking about is where you're trying to minimize damage and deflect some responsibility for what you did. The first one is concern for others. The second one is all about concern for yourself. Now, as young people, we develop some real expertise with both kinds of apologies. I'm speaking from experience here. I'm not judging. I'm just telling you, young people make lots of mistakes. This is when you get new responsibilities and freedoms, but you don't have enough life experience to anticipate how your decisions will work out. So you make lots of mistakes as a young person, and ideally you learn from them. Now, we tend to do a little better in our adult years but we're all very, very capable of some self-centered apology. In fact, I made a mistake recently and I would like to share it with you. Take a look. This is right behind Dunkin' Donuts here in Dunwoody. I am extra polite to police officers. (laughs) Yes sir, no sir, very, very sorry sir. But in that moment, that guy wasn't sorry. I was annoyed, I was frustrated, I was trying to get somewhere and I had a coworker sitting next to me and now I'm really embarrassed and he's thoroughly enjoying this. <laughs> I was embarrassed to get pulled over by the officer and I was pretty sure at the time the officer was wrong. So I started saying all the words to make this go away. Except he gave me a ticket anyhow. So I went on the offense. I'm not proud of this. I filed a subpoena for the dash cam, which is why we're looking at it this morning. Y'all have done it too. You know that yield sign I'm talking about. It's right on Nandina Lane. Rather than accept the consequences for improperly following the yield sign... I went on the offense and tried to justify and explain. I, that's that second flavor of apology that I'm talking about. I mean, I definitely apologized to the officer. I expressed regret to the court for this situation. But my goal at the time was to deflect blame and to avoid consequences, not to own responsibility for what I did and I did something wrong. I didn't follow the yield sign and I did it in front of a police officer. Well, Let's take that same sort of thinking that I'm describing here with my situation and apply that to Jonah's situation. Before I do that though, I'm speaking to the young people in the room here. I want to tell you a secret, young people. When you apologize for something you did, your parents know right away whether you're genuinely sorry or whether you're saying the words that will get you out of trouble. Parents can tell the difference between a genuine change of heart and just doing this to make the problem go away. Just like our Father in heaven knows when we're in trouble, we start praying. Psalm one thirty nine two says... You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. And Romans 8.27 talks about He who searches the heart of man. You should know that before you get on your knees and start praying, God already knows what kind of prayer you're about to offer because He knows the condition of your heart. God knows whether you're about genuine repentance or whether you're just saying some words because you don't like the consequences in the situation you're in. And as you study the text in Jonah with me this morning… I would ask you, how does Jonah's prayer strike you in terms of one or two? While you think about that, let's go back to the text for a minute. I think it would be unfair to ignore the positive elements of Jonah's prayer from inside the fish. In verse 3, he says, you threw me into the depths of the heart of the sea, and the currents overcame me. That's an acknowledgment of God's discipline. And then in verse 4 and 5, Jonah's saying, I have been banished. The depths have overcome me. I sank into the foundations of the mountains. And Jonah's being very honest about his circumstances here. And then he goes on, he says, but you raised my life from the pit, Lord. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. And Jonah ends his prayer in verse 9 by saying, "Uh, God, I know you're going to save me. He's expressing trust. And and look, it only took Jonah three days in the digestive tract of a fish to get around to praying the prayer that God was waiting for him to say. Now, my parents are probably watching this. I got grounded a lot as a kid. I was kind of hard-headed. And I was stubborn, and I was rebellious. And, and Jonah has had the longest thinking time out I've ever heard of. It's a pretty tough one. And, and he had no ability to save himself. Jo- Jonah realizes at some point uh, that he cannot save himself, and there is no escape from this situation except by God's grace. And so Jonah gets to praying. And the text is very specific, in the word that it uses, it says, then. When Jonah finished that prayer, the text says, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Now, you remember these two types of apologies I mentioned, one and two? I would like to show you a different prayer just for some contrast. This is the prayer that Nehemiah prayed uh, at the beginning of uh, the book of Nehemiah, and he, he, he opens in prayer, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keeps His commands, let your eye be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Listen to these words. I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my Father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands and statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. This, this prayer, this sounds a whole lot more like that first kind of apology I, I was talking about. Nehemiah is taking absolute ownership of the circumstances, the brokenness, the trouble that he's facing, that his family is facing, and in comparison, well, that's why we call Jonah the prophet who never quite got it right. But God. But God, in his endless love, heard Jonah's prayer and redeemed Jonah, rescued him from the the situation, not because Jonah said magic words, but because God loved him and extended grace despite all of that foolishness. And this is the reason. This is the reason Jonah is such an engaging story. It's the way you can find yourself in the narrative. God said this, and Jonah did that. And then God said this, and Jonah did the opposite. And then Jonah was disobedient, and then Jonah didn't love others. And then he was even more disobedient. And then he had a terrible attitude, and then he complained to God and told God he, he was doing everything wrong. And, and, and then Jonah did this, and then this. And, then, uh, and, and as you're reading it, and it's like, ooh, ooh, mmm, mmm, You see, not only are all of us capable of disobedience to God, all of us actually are disobedient to God in some way. And the book of Jonah really works like a mirror in that regard because as you turn the pages and you go, Jonah did this and then he did that and boy, he, God, God told this. And, 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 and at a certain point you go, oh. See, you, as, as you're turning those pages and you're reading that text, You're no longer looking at a disobedient prophet. You're looking into a mirror because there's a Jonah in the text looking back at you. You study Jonah long enough, you're going to find a broken person in the pages in need of God's grace. We can't really judge Jonah. We are Jonah. In fact, the story of Jonah was such a powerful example of God's grace when it's not deserved that 750 years after the story of Jonah, Jesus is in a conversation with the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem, and He uses the example of Jonah to talk about a rebellious people who were in need of God's grace. I don't think they ever got it, and that's why the scribes and Pharisees were compared to Jonah, and Jesus was talking about the coming of the Son of Man. So here we are at the end of chapter 2 in this four-chapter series on Jonah. We got a disobedient prophet sitting on the beach having had the very no-good worst week of his entire life. He is very much the worst for wear, and he's lucky to be alive. And the scene, of just Jonah sitting there contemplating the last 72 hours, reminds me that one way or the other, God is going to get our attention. That's what loving fathers do with wayward children. In fact, our father loved us so much that he used the blood of his own son to atone for our sins that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Grace means that God loves us And he is willing to work through whatever we've done. He's willing to work through the pain we've caused. He's willing to work through the disappointment of disobedience in order to restore right relationship with his children. Jonah never really understood the depths of God's grace. The question I would ask this morning is, do you? Two takeaways for reflection this morning as we close. If you are in a season of personal discipline, then God's doing something with you. He wants you to pray honestly about your circumstances, and I would encourage you to pray honestly about your contribution to the situation you're in. And when that time of discipline is over, however it ends, give thanks to God no matter what, because it means you've received some grace that you didn't deserve even if it comes in a different form than you were expecting. And as we wrap up this time of study in the Word, I want you to know that our pastors are going to be available after the the message this morning. I'll be in the lobby. And if you want to talk about God's grace or God's forgiveness or tell us what God's doing in your life, I'd really like to hear it. If you don't know who Jesus is or you're asking questions or you're in a season of doubt, I'm going to be back there and I would really like to chat with you. I want to hear what God's doing in your life, I want to hear how God's moving, and I appreciate that opportunity for that conversation. Church, will you join me in a word of prayer as we close? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together, for the opportunity to look into your Word. God, we thank you for Scripture that treats us um, harshly, even when we… Uh, are not realizing what you're doing. God, we thank you for text that works like a mirror so that we look into your Word and we can see ourselves. We can see our disobedience and we can see uh, our resistance and we can see our stubbornness. God, I pray that you would work in each of us to see where you are moving uh, and to form us in your Son's image that we might glorify you in, in all that we do. We thank you for this time together and we ask you to bless us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.